As I get older, that question is always circling, you know, um, my studio practice is like, why do I feel that way? Does this belong to me? You know, and if, if so, am I, what, what is the it? You're listening to the Mouthwash Podcast. For all you guys listening, Carmen Winnet is a professor and educator, fine artist and writer living in Columbus, Ohio, where she teaches at the Ohio State University. Um, and we'll link more of her work in the in the description below. Yeah. Do you want to kind of give like an, a timeline of your career and kind of what's gotten you to this point? Okay. So I, I w- work as an artist and as a professor, as I mentioned, and as a parent. And I really kind of think of those as the triangulation of my work. Um, and they come in contact with each other sometimes. Sometimes they feel, you know, more discrepant. Um, so it really depends on who is asking the question about what my work is. But I make that point kind of in concert with the earlier answer that like how we define our the trajectory of our work as being aligned with what we do sort of like quote unquote professionally as opposed to our work, which is like, you know, mm-hmm. the hard work that we do at home as, you know, as like domestic caregivers, I think is like how we cleave those things is actually part of the problem. But yeah. <laughs> that being said, um, <laughs> I, um, I think what you're asking is about my art life and my art career. And um, uh, the short version, I guess, would be to say that I, like a lot of younger people, wanted to be an artist for, you know, I felt I was an artist from a young age or I felt like some deep impulse that I wanted to make art and went to UCLA um, and studied, you know, and studied art. Um, I studied photography and was a very dedicated photographer for many years. And at mm-hmm. some point in my mid twenties, I, I stopped taking my own pictures. Well, I sort of, I started taking pictures of other people's pictures and of found pictures mm-hmm. and then eventually just cut out my picture taking altogether. I sort of realized through, I mean, really years of working this way, it wasn't a quick process that I wanted to, um, I just wanted to get at the found picture. I didn't need to mediate it, in other words. And so I started making installations eventually of those found pictures, um, which I really found from all over. There was no single criterion of how to find those kinds of pictures. Um, And I used to arrange them in my studio so I could see all of them. And that was how I made collages. And kind of one day I looked up and I just saw, you know, a studio covered in, in these found pictures that I had taped to the wall with this blue painter's tape. And I thought like, oh, this is, this is the thing. It was again, like this way of um, kind of accidentally arriving at the thing that I, I kind of wanted to do all along, but maybe Mm -hmm. hadn't given myself a moment. Yeah, but that took years. Like the way we describe it often is like retro, you know, kind of like retroactively as um, like as if we always knew or like it was some slick (laughs) transition. It really was like much more jagged than that. Um, Mm. And uh, I graduated. I went to graduate school. I went to Skowhegan, which is a residency in central Maine um, for emerging artists. That was really important in my kind of like critical development. I mean, it was really important in that. I got to be around a lot of artists who were really serious about being artists, you know, and were really curious about what it meant to be an artist and incredibly self-driven. So I really recommend other young artists and emerging artists look at that residency. Um, And I moved to New York and I'm trying to decide how, (laughs) what a shortened version of this would look like. Um, I started teaching. I, and I eventually landed at Ohio State University, where I currently teach, and teaching has been also really meaningful. Part of my, I also consider that to be a part of my creative practice. Um, and I started showing my work more, and um, I was in an exhibition two years ago at MoMA, um, uh, an exhibition called New Photography that they mount every two years, um, in which I made this work called My Birth that... Um, it garnered a lot of um, sort of a, 
attention and it was really mm-hmm. a meaningful work in, you know, in sort of the, in within my kind of like my career trajectory, but more like in my spiritual trajectory, you know, and that since that time, um, I have been making more works in and around, I guess I would call it, I call it motherhood maybe, but like with some hesitancy, um, you know, like, and care and labor and the performance of women's bodies. Hmm. Does, was teaching selling you always knew that you wanted to do, or is that something that kind of was introduced into the timeline and you found that you really actually enjoyed it? A little bit of both, I would say. Um, you may or may not know that it is very difficult to be a independent artist in the world, um, you know, sort of simply supporting yourself on your work and nothing else. Well, also, I, I mean, I knew that that was difficult, but I also felt sort of skeptical of the whole system of the commercial gallery mm-hmm. system. And so I was attracted to teaching as a way to support my work. But, you know, the more I did it, the more I felt like there was so much to gain. Oh, sorry, I'll turn that off. Like there was so much to sort of gain from being in the classroom and from working with students. And, you know, that like it it wasn't. um, It sounds so trite to say like it was just like a mutual exchange, right, to be kind of constantly in conversation with them and to talk to them about what they are working on and to, you know, to hear them defending their work or asking questions of other people's work. It's just really, it's really meaningful to be around that all the time. And so it's been, um, it's been a useful way to think about my work, but also like a really kind of, you know, generative way to live. Hmm. Yeah. It feels like you're kind of like constantly giving back as soon as you, as soon as you kind of like learn something that would be worth handing off to somebody else. Right. That's the hope. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it's really, I mean, I really mean it when I say that I learn things from the students. Like I don't, I don't feel like it's an exchange without reciprocity. Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. So like we, I, do you, okay. So when you, I don't know how to like phrase this question, but, um, when you first started collaging or using found imagery, um, were you using the internet at the time or like mostly books and like print? Um, I, I was not, I mean, I use the internet <laughs> the way that right. everybody uses the internet, but no, I mean, this is something that I should have mentioned probably earlier. Um, I don't use the internet to find material. So all of the material, huh. all of the photographic material is um, like, I would say original, except of course, like a photograph can't ever be original, right? So it's kind of a, an oxymoron to say an original photograph, but it's original in the sense that, um, right, like it's been printed and it's circulated and it's been touched by different hands and people have written notes in the margins and then I end up with the book in my hand. So like, or maybe there's, um, you know, uh, like stains on it, or sometimes you can even kind of see if the book is old enough, like, uh, and the the black is really uh, like deep, a kind of a deep matte black. You can even see fingerprints sometimes mm. impressed into the mm. ink. And so that's really what I am thinking about as I collect this material. Like I'm thinking about its life as an object because of course yeah. we think about photographs as being flat illusionistic surfaces, but they're objects, you know, like they're printed on different kinds of paper. They have different textures, different patinas. And of course, like these, all of these discrete histories of these hands mm-hmm. and lives that they've circulated through. So it's a really different process than like the endless scroll, you know, um, right. And in fact, it becomes, if you do it long enough, it actually becomes not exactly a closed loop, but I oftentimes will come across like the same model who has like been in multiple books or the same image, or I'll look at another artist who's making like sort of collage oriented work. And I'll recognize a lot of the images Mm -hmm. in their collages because it's like, um, it is a much more limited vocabulary set than the endless scroll. So there's something kind of interesting about that too, like the, um, the closed circuit of, you know, there's only so much printed material up until this point. And if you're really embedded in this world, you come in contact with a lot of it. Right. Yeah. It's really, it's a really interesting, this is a really timely conversation because Mackenzie and I were having this conversation last night about like, um, you know, we both come from like commercial photography and agency world where like photographers make their money off of using photographs as opposed to producing photographs. Mm. Um, 
And this interesting theory that like there's a lot of brands and people that are are so like in the social sphere are using a strategy that like repurposes or appropriates photographs. Um, and kind of we kind of got into like this deep conversation about like, well, what what's the difference between it? Why is it okay to repost like a meme? or like an iPhone photo without okay. anybody's permission as opposed to like an actual photograph that was taken for, like at what point are they really different? Um, and I, I'm kind of just curious, like have you ever gotten like pushback or backlash for maybe incidentally using somebody's photograph that was licensed for commercial use or um, like how has that gone down? Yes. This um, won't surprise you to hear probably that this is a question that I get with some frequency. Um, There's no, in my mind, like perfectly ethical way to work as an artist. I think like a lot of different ways of working present ethical complications. In fact, I found myself saying to a friend the other day who's a photographer, like, oh, I just, I wish I just made photographs again. And then like, you know, and then like there wouldn't be this ethical problem. I like, I made some offhand remark, which of course was ridiculous, you know, like as Mm -hmm. if being a photographer, like a, you know, sort of the primary producer of photographs doesn't also, um, you know, as if that person doesn't also contend with ethical and moral quandaries in the making of their work. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that all being said, um, the way that I work, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I have to wrestle with these kinds of problems a lot. And in some ways, that's what makes the work interesting. You know, It, it, it makes it challenging and dynamic and at the same time, I don't want to hurt anybody with my work, right? So right. I feel a little less concerned, uh, le- like about sort of legal liability. Um, what I do, for the most part, would be considered fair use, which is a pretty generous um, law that bends towards artists. But I am concerned about um, making people feel violated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in and sort of um, emotionally charged ways. So it has happened in the past, and I can give you an example here of with my birth, where I've heard from people who are either pictured in the work or have done the picturing. So there were two examples when that work was installed at MoMA. And frankly, I'm surprised that there are not more considering the number of people who pass through that, you know, that museum every day from all over the Mm -hmm. world. Um, But there was one person who had made a photograph um, and was quite skeptical of the entire, excuse me, who made a photograph that appeared in the installation. And they were really suspicious of my intent and felt Mm -hmm. threatened by by the prospect of it um, and had copyright over their own work. and, And they were an artist. So that is also a kind of a different quandary right because for the most part like these are coming from medical textbooks or Mm -hmm. kind of like feminist kind of health you know um pamphlets and so forth um and in the other case it was somebody whose mother appeared who was delighted you know that that her mother was in the installation Mm -hmm. her mother was no longer alive um but she had participated she had been a birth worker and you know like so she really felt aligned with the piece um Mm -hmm. so in the in the former case Um, You know, that was someone that I spent a lot of time talking to and we went back and forth and had a really open conversation. And in the end, we actually ended up trading work, which was really nice. Um, But I think I think in other words, one has to be willing to have those difficult conversations. And I have in cases, other cases beyond my birth taken down work um, or done things to sort of comply with certain people's wishes. Um, Sometimes that's more or less possible. But to be perfectly honest, Mm -hmm. it happens less than you would think. Like I can count on one hand the number of times that I really had those kinds of dedicated exchanges with people. Um, And maybe one last thing I'll say on this front is um, there was also a book um, also called My Birth, that, that I produced along with the installation. And there were images of my mother in that book giving birth to me and my siblings, among other things. And the midwife who had delivered me um, reached out to me, who hadn't like been in, you know, wasn't a really necessarily friend of my mom, hadn't been in contact with my mom, you know, for mm-hmm. 35 years since I was born. Um, and someone had given her the book 
in which she appeared um, on the, her last day of being a midwife after 40 years of being a midwife. It was mm. her last day before she retired. And so that was really moving, you know, and she felt really wow. moved by it. So, of course, those are the things you want to have happen, but um, right. it's out of my control and one needs to sort of demonstrate sensitivity um, and, you know, and sort of openness when those kinds of conversations do come to bear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. Like we, yeah, I don't know. Do you, I guess like, do you believe in like ask for forgiveness later rather than permission up front? Um, I don't know. Is that, is that kind of like your mantra with all of this? I, I know that's like, that kind of like puts the whole thing into this weird like context that like, I don't want it to make it feel as if like, oh, you know, you're doing something wrong. So you like better to think about it. Like, right. I don't well, want it that, to ever- That is the insinuation I mean. with that kind of language. I mean, I know what you're right. saying. And yeah, I mean, yeah. it becomes like, it becomes, there are ethical gray areas for sure in the work. I mean, so I'll say a couple things in response. I have always sure. felt, and this is for better or worse and maybe for worse, but I've always felt like the world of pictures belonged to me. Like it belonged to, like it circulated. And, you know, as with many of us, like my teenage room was covered in pictures, you know? So you couldn't see the walls and I would just like keep on layering and layering. Like I wouldn't take off the old ones. I would just put new ones on, you know? Um, it's a great regret that I don't have a photograph of this. And, you know, when my parents <laughs> moved out of that house in Philadelphia where I grew up, they just like, it all came down in one layer, you know? Um, like like something, yeah. you know, like a, like a, like an excavational dig. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I always have felt like I belong to this world of pictures. I always wanted to circulate inside of it. And so many of the pictures that I use are, I mean, all of the pictures that I use exist in public space. You know, they like exist in books for the most part that are disseminated. So that was really in a large large part what spurred on that that project, my birth that we're talking about is I had been collecting um, mostly like feminist health literature from largely from the 1970s, although not only um, that women were producing for other women, you know, like with the idea that mm-hmm. it should live in the in the world with the idea that like yeah. knowledge is power, you know, and, and power is political. And so like for me, I see myself operating sort of within that kind of continuum, you know, like mm-hmm. um that this, that pushing this work, continuing to push this work into the public eye or into visit, you know, some like state of more heightened visibility is, um, is a political act. And it is to sort of, to do service to a kind of feminist agenda. So for me, it's less about like, can I get away with this? And more mm-hmm. like, um, like, how can I continue to show this kind of body or this kind of action that already is circulating in the world? Like these books are yeah. already disseminating. It's not as if importantly, like I'm pulling them off of people's shelves yeah. or like swiping them out of people's yeah. family yeah. albums or something. Yeah. So there's already a kind of publicness about them yeah 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 i yeah and i that wasn't meant to like i'm not trying to like pen you or anything like i because i think about this stuff a lot like like i'm i'm like a huge advocate for like anything on the internet is like kind of fair game like it's out there and like it's like there for people to consume and enjoy and i'm like a huge like i think increasingly over the time like i think when i first started i like was like no photographers should be like paid for every like usage and all this stuff. And like, well, I still, still do believe that. And I think there's a lot of people that are getting like screwed out of like, maybe not even really screwed. It's just like, there's money that they could have made because they saw somebody else make that type of money as well under like the same premises. It's like, for me, I'm just like, I don't know. It's like, it's out there and it's in the world. Like, it's not really like, you can't like spend your whole life or your energy trying to like put your arms around it and hoping that people Yeah, it's a a complicated, it's definitely complicated. I think there's there's a lot of nuance to it. And I don't, I definitely don't want to be on the record being like, photographers don't own their work, you know, or like, I can just go in and take what I want. Um, But yeah, I think there's nuance to the conversation around like, what kinds of histories are you tapping into? Do those people want their work to be made more public? Are those people artists in the first place? And if they don't distinguish themselves as artists, like, does that does that change the terms of, you know, like what I can then sort of contextualize as art. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just think there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables, but um, yeah, as I get older, I, I mean, I, I have to, I have to question that instinct that I have where it's like, this belongs to me, (laughs) you know, like there's there's something so entitled about that. Um, 
And so I think that that is part of like that question is always circling, you know, um, my studio practice is like, why do I feel that way? Does this belong to me? Like, you know, and if, if so, am I, what, what is the it? Like, is it, is it the history? Is it the movement? Is it the image? Is it, you know, like it, so I think that there's, there's something, um, complicated in there that is actually the engine for the work. Hmm. I mean, I was just thinking about you as a teacher, which kind of like leads me into the question about like, what, what are you teaching at OSU currently? And do you have a favorite thing that you've taught on or a favorite class that you've been in on? Yeah. So I'm in this sort of curious position where, um, I teach in an art department, but because I, um, because I'm a person who's sort of in between disciplines, which is to say, um, I don't sort of quite belong to sculpture. I don't quite belong to photography. I like, you know, I live somewhere in between. Um, so I don't actually have a home area. So I'm what they call an unaffiliated faculty member here at OSU. Um, Mm. and I also have a master's degree in visual and critical studies. So that also makes me sort of doubly in between, um, which means that I am, um, let's say an artist who is like equipped and interested in teaching um, theory and criticism classes. So that often means, I don't know how like sexy this is to talk about, um, you know, voice to voice, but that often means that I'm teaching uh, fewer classes that are making classes, right? Like production classes, studio classes, and I'm teaching more classes that are seminar based. Um, so for instance, this semester I'm teaching a graduate seminar um, about, um, the limits of language and sort of the instrumentalization of the body as a tool and sort of like what it means to think through the body and sort of understand the language of the body. And there's a lot of different artists from a lot of different areas, you know, from like ceramics to glass, um, to sculpture, painting and drawing, photography and so forth, who are taking the class or maybe relating to that idea differently on the basis of, their medium, but also, you know, like their history and what they're interested in making. Um, so mm-hmm. for classes like that, there is some making, but for the most part, there's a lot of sort of reading, writing, discussion. And the idea is like, really like as critical thinkers, how do we become more sensitive to our worlds? And that has become much more my focus as a teacher, which is sort of just a curious position within an art department, but mm-hmm. one that I really value. Yeah. And, and you write a lot too, right? I, I feel like, uh, along with like a lot of your work in the installations and, um, curating, like there's so much academic writing, like on your website. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Talk a little about <laughs> yeah. That? Well, I used to write more than I, um, do now. The kid thing really curbed my writing time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, f- when I got out of graduate school, I thought of a not exactly abandoning art, but I thought that I would maybe want to write about art. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the reason, I mean, I like doing that a lot, but it is at the very bottom of the totem pole in terms of um, remuneration. Like one is paid nothing almost to write about mm-hmm. art. And so it just wasn't sustainable, but it was a really important time in my life because I saw, I was living in New York, I saw a ton of art, you know, and more importantly, even than that, I had to figure out how I felt about it. You know, like Mm -hmm. I really, I taught myself how to write about art that way. Like I really had to contend with like, do I like this? Okay. Why don't I like it? You know, like what does it have to do with the, like art historical context, you know, like just really kind of sorting through I mean, we learn about how to think this way a little bit in art school, but I don't know that we really have to defend it. And so I did that for years and it taught me, um, I think it taught me how to sort of be sensitive to this world that I've situated inside of like nothing else could have. And so even though I don't write as much anymore, um, and Mm -hmm. I certainly don't write much art criticism, I mostly write other things, I feel like it, it gave me this instrument. It gave me this way of thinking that, really kind of changed everything for me. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've been like really trying to train myself to like, I think writing is one of the most in, like crucial and critical things that we're like really missing um, more and more, like as the generations like surpass. And um, yeah, I read this quote like a few years ago uh, from Flannery O'Connor that said like, I write to discover what I know. Mm. Um, 
And I think so many times like visual artists like try to exclude um, writing or, or like substitute their visual art for like what they're trying to say. And for me, I feel like we have to like really be sure of why, like you were saying, like why I feel this way. Like this is like the justified reason for that. And maybe you don't always need to, but I think like one of the really important things for us is like, like how do you use words to connect ideas? And if we stop doing that, I think it's going to like really kind of change and shift the perspective or like the paradigm of like things that we end up making from when it goes from like concept to like actual creation process. So I'm always curious and like, really fascinated by artists who are very adamant about writing and very adamant about like their thoughts circulating an idea. Um, I just think it's really important. And I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to like, yeah, yeah, no, I do too. I mean, the first, one of the first things we do oftentimes, like if I'm teaching a, um, you know, like theory and criticism seminar with graduate students is to talk about those very words. Like, you know, like what are, when we're talking about theory, this word that we so often bandy about, like, what does that actually even mean, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of like introducing these twin and contradictory explanations that theory can be both a hypothesis and an explanation. And like, mm -hmm. how do we how do we think about that sort of in relationship mm -hmm. to our work, you know, and in terms of mm -hmm. what our work proposes? And that really means like in every case defining our terms as we go along. Right. And kind of not assuming that. Um, everyone thinks one idea or one word means the same or one context means the same thing. You know, like this is, this is what I think it is to be a sensitive human being, certainly, and definitely a sensitive artist. And yeah, that writing was the first time that I figured out. And again, this like took me years really um, to figure out not just like how to be a good writer, but actually what I thought about, you know, like, the world, the art world, certainly, you know, um, and it has, it has helped me kind of like shape opinions, but also just shape myself. Mm. Did you have, when you were like just starting to write and challenge yourself with that, did you have like specific mentors or specific things that you used to help like kind of shape that craft for you? Um, yes and no. I had, I had people in my life who were sort of served as creative mentors for me in terms of, you know, how I contended with making visual art. Um, I mean, I think this might sound a little hackneyed, but like, I think that my mentors were other writers, like on, on the page, you know, yeah. um, yeah. I didn't really know them. I hadn't gone to school for writing. I had a few friends who were creative writers, but it was really, um, it was really reading other people. Like I remember at that time, and this was, oh, like 2011 when I started writing in this way, I remember, um, really getting into, uh, Wayne Kestenbaum and discovering his books. And then through his books, he had thanked, you know, a number of other writers, like he thanked Hilton Alls and, you know, he thanked Maggie Nelson. And like, this was before maybe some of those people were, the, you know, like literary kind of phenoms that they are now. And I would just kind of like follow my nose and be like, oh, okay, who is Maggie Nelson? You know, and then I would go to the Strand and like buy a Maggie Nelson book. Um, and, you know, or I would get recommendations or like, I remember once I was sitting next to someone on the subway and they were reading this Julio Cortazar book. And I just start, you know, like we just started talking about the book and that became a, this book, Cronopias y Famas, became this like really important book for me on the basis of this chance encounter. So I was really, um, I mean, I didn't have kids, you know, I like, I was, I really had a lot of time to read. So right. <laughs> I, I read a ton, you know, and I was really, um, I read all the Sheila Hetty books. I mean, I was really interested in kind of like meta memoir and like this kind of um, this these people who were writing in between. It was sort of like in between fiction and nonfiction or it was sort of um, nonfiction met cultural criticism, like someone like Leslie Jameson. I really was like I, I really devoured a lot of books in that time. And I read a yeah. lot. I mean, I read like you know, like Gertrude Stein and language poets. I mean, it was really far reaching. So, um, that was, yeah. So it was, <laughs> I mean, pretty yeah. much. So it was, um, 
that in turn, when you ask about mentors, I mean, that was, that's who I think about. Um, and you know, like, yeah. it's like a lot of things. It's like art, you kind of copy the people that you like until you figure right. out how to do it in a way that makes sense for you. Yeah. Um, that kind of like leads me to the question too, of like, um, your, your, I feel like your work is, is very, um, I would say like your work in both your, like your writing feels extremely academic. Um, probably good that you're a, an academic teacher. Um, and then also, uh, like a lot of your studio art, like your installations and collages and stuff feels like, um, they weren't like, you can tell that it was, it's been a process and you've been making before there was like platforms to put it on or that like it was ulteriorly motivated by platforms such as like medium to post articles on or like Instagram to post work on. And, um, do you feel like mediums and platforms and like places where people are putting work now, like has any effect on the way you've shifted making work or like, I don't know, like, does that concern you at all? Or do you, or do you feel com very comfortable with the way that you write and publish your own work on your writing page and just like images of installations on your website? Um, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. I, I mean, I will say that I just in this, like spirit of honesty, I don't write very much these days. Like I, I'm quite selective about it because it takes a lot of time and, um, yeah, like, like I have a two and a four year old. So, right. um, I don't write in the same way that I used to, like I'll write a couple of like substantial pieces a year, maybe like two or three. Um, right. and is the, is the question then like how, how has shifting technology, the way that we share things, how does that affect yeah, it? How I, feel I guess, about the output? I, I, I guess it's kind of that, but I also just kind of feel like you, like the way the work is presented feels like it's, it's kind of, you're kind of like making it for yourself. Like you're not like, you're not like writing with the intent of it going like being like a viral like blog on the internet or you're not like creating work with the intent of it like you know becoming viral on twitter or instagram or anything like that and um i know you're probably like oh yeah like well of course like that's just i just am making work that i want to make but um do you yeah do you feel like technology and the way like platforms have risen or the way artists like come to fame have like I see what you're saying. On, I mean, on the way yeah. you it's like a, you know, it can be like a popularity contest. You know, I right. mean, one wonders why people become artists in the first place. Um, right. I mean, I this is again gonna. Say, I hope this doesn't sound too hokey to say out loud, but um, my partner is also an artist whom I met at Skowhegan, that residency mm -hmm. that I mentioned earlier. He has always, we do, we live together and we both have studios at home. So we're constantly talking um, about what we're making. And he's always saying to me um, and sort of echoing this over and over that um, like what it is to be brave, what it is to be a brave artist and what it is to make brave decisions, you know, which is, which is similar to sort of like sticking to your principles or, you know, like continuing to be true to yourself, but it's something a little bit more specific. And I have tried to, I mean, those things are all really important. Like what, you know, like uh, without yeah. our principles, we have nothing, you know? Mm. I mean, so that really resonates. Like what, what does it mean to be brave? And so I've thought mm. about that a lot over the years because you're right that I have been working this way or, a, you know, sort of in and around this subject matter for a long time. And for a long time, nobody cared about it, you know? Mm. Um, and even when I got to the MoMA to install, I felt like, oh, fuck. Like, you know, I, I felt like, oh, here I am. I'm putting up 2,000 pictures of vaginas splaying open. I mean, not only, but in large part, you know, and like on these like dinky pieces of paper and I'm taping them up to the wall and I was surrounded by these right. like beautiful frame photographs, not only, but, you know, in large part. And it was really scary you know so like yeah. i don't know that that ends i don't know that like um you at least all i can speak for myself and say i don't know that i can get to a point or i i don't feel like i have gotten to a point where i just feel like oh it's easy to be brave in the way that i know for myself or know to be true mm -hmm. for myself so i mean yes like i guess the platforms change or attention shifts um but that's the best advice it doesn't exactly answer your question but that's the best advice mm -hmm. that i've gotten on that front more than like just keep believing in yourself or keep making what you're making or you right. know like these sort of kind of vaguer more vague 
you know, kind of like truisms about what we do or why we do it. Like, I'm always trying to think about like, what is it, what does it mean to be brave, which is different than being just like sensational, you know, like, um, inside of my practice. And that sustains me more than anything else. Yeah. Because I I think, and Ken, Mackenzie and I talk about this all the time and Abraham, who's like the third partner in mouthwash. And it's like, kind of like somebody in the room will say what everybody else is afraid to say, which is what if nobody likes this? And then somebody else in the room says, so what if they don't? And I don't know. It's just like those weird questions of like what you're talking about, like being brave as an artist. It's like, it really is always scary. Like no matter what point you get to or like at what scale you're working at, it's like at some point you're going to put every part of yourself or every ounce of yourself into this project or what you believe is you know, like a true representation of what you're trying to say. And you're going to put it out in the world and hope that, you know, people receive it or feel the same way that you do about it. Or maybe they don't. And I think at any point in an artist's career, that's always pretty terrifying, I would say. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a project of immense vulnerability making. And then, of course, it's like that, in my case, at least, that was the thing that people responded to the most, you know, of anything that I've made. Yeah. And so um, I don't know what that goes to show you. It goes to show something, I guess. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, just a couple more. Like, I don't know. I'm really enjoying this conversation. You're very intelligent, by the way. I don't know if anybody's no, ever told you that. <laughs> I have. It's nice of you to say. I had so little sleep last night. Um, from <laughs> there were like multiple wake ups between both of my children. So I was just thinking yeah. to myself, I hope that I can get out a cogent word. So that's nice of you to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Um, I just wanted to touch on a couple more points, and Mackenzie, if you have anything else too, but. I, you mentioned something at the very beginning when we were just kind of chatting that like um, it, it's you're to me like I look at your life and it's so fascinating to me because I, I respect your work so much and you don't live in Ohio or you don't live in LA or New York you don't live coastally and you don't like practice an art medium that is very popular right now for lack of a better term um, and so to me like the whole thing is just crazy like you live in Ohio like the the like basically near the city where I grew up in you're doing work that I didn't even know like existed um until like you know the last four or five years um and so like my bigger question for all that is like do you feel equally supported um coastally as you do like in the midwest um do you think that people still believe in like even though like a lot of people only believe like that creative communities exist coastally yeah it's a really good question I when I moved here almost six years ago I felt like Mm -hmm it was the beginning of the end. (laughs) And, you know, at that point I didn't have like a so-called art career, you know, I'd barely shown my work. Um, I had mostly written, you know, as we've talked about, and I got this teaching job and, um, I really, I really felt, I remember actually the day that I, the day that we moved here, I cried. I, I mean, I just like wept openly mm-hmm. and I really felt like, okay, that's I, I it. I cried when I left Ohio. I felt so great about it. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm right, right. I love it. You I have a great place to Crying in different directions. Yeah. But I mean, this is going to sound canned, but I really don't mean it this way. Like it has been such a surprising and meaningful experience to be here Um, Mm -hmm. in some ways for the obvious reasons like uh, it's cheaper you know so you can work in a bigger space and you can afford your life in a different way you can afford your art practice Um, Mm -hmm. there's not so much competition so it's just like less demoralizing in terms of building community like community felt like it was so available and profound Mm -hmm. Um, so that all immediate that was all felt immediately um and because the university is here and actually ohio state university is the largest university in the country um so it's like this enormous brain trust you know so like there's there's so much potential for collaboration with people in classics you know political science material science like it just it really feels sort of boundless um and then also the Wexner is here in addition to the Columbus Museum of Art. And the Wexner brings in, you know, there's like you could go to a screening or a performance or a talk like every night of the week. Right. And so that also means that a lot of artists and filmmakers are kind of cycling through in and out, in and out. So it actually felt like more of a hub than I thought that it would um, mm-hmm. while providing the kind of like space and affordability and community that was lacking in other places. So it wasn't until, I know different people have different stories on this front, but for me, Mm -hmm. it wasn't until I moved here 
that I found possibility to open up. Um, I can't, I don't exactly know how that equation came together, except that I continue, I got a studio and I continued to make work and I continued to sort of maintain my friendships, you know, like this is the other thing. In addition to um, being brave that I would suggest for young artists, it sounds so obvious, but like oftentimes I get this question of like, how do you network? You know, like all this question around professional networking and it's what people really should be asking is like, how do I build community? Right? Like how do I um, find like-minded friends and how, how do we sort of like learn to support each, each other and sort of build each other up? Not only in terms of like, you know, like our career trajectories, but in terms of making more interesting art, you know, um, and yeah. like being better citizens. And for me, like going to Skowhegan and as I've mentioned a couple times and like meeting friends from not all, only all over the country, but like all over the world and like continuing to, you know, be in like virtual critique groups or show one another's work to curators like that. Um, that's all to say like that was percolating the whole time. So by the time that I got to Ohio and I had maintained the, that sort of friend group and that broader community, it felt like a kind of confluence of life variables coming together um, in this way that felt really supportive, really for the first time right. in, in my like creative adult life. Hmm. So I guess that's how it happened. I, I you know, one can't really right. say um, yeah. the same way, like as when I had kids, I was like, oh, I guess this is over now, you know, and then like that turned into not by this. I mean, like my art life or my art career will be like severely hamstrung by this. And, you know, and it turned out to yield so much in terms of being an artist. So I guess if there's a moral here, it's like not to kind of like write off those things that feel like they're not like the kind of, um, uh, you know, like otherwise pre-scripted trajectory, you know, like there's actually right. so many other kind of avenues available to us that yield so much. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that's super interesting and something that you just said is something I kind of want to end on that I find really interesting is how do you think being becoming a parent and thinking that that might end certain parts of your career part of your art making how has that like instead informed your work or do you feel like it's been very pivotal or it's been kind of just like this addition oh there's so much to talk about here um yes I felt I well maybe I could start by saying that it wasn't such a reach for me, um, considering that I had been working for years, like in and around, you know, the gendered performance of like femininity and, you know, like the capacity and power of our bodies and the kind of like coming together of different kinds of feelings like pleasure and pain and how women perform for the camera and for, you know, like how we build communities for one another outside of patriarchy. Like, so like, it just, it felt to me like being pregnant and giving birth and being a mother was like really kind of tapped into, you know, that, which I was already curious about. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, it, it really, it transformed everything. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I was pregnant. It was just like, <sighs> Ah, uh, you know, it's like there you feel a body moving around inside of your body and you push a body out of your body. You know, I mean, it is like there's nothing that can prepare you and there's nothing that does prepare you, which is also partially what that work was about. Like, you know, kind of the lack of, um, you know, let's say like visual content that actually works to do justice towards that end. Yeah. Um, so. I'm losing the strain of your question, but yes. Um, so I, I felt as though um, that was a meaningful experience to say the least. And that was my yeah. first instinct right after I gave birth the first time was like, where's the art about this, you know? And when mm -hmm. I couldn't yeah. find the art about it to kind of like satiate me, I felt like, hey, I have to make the art about this, you know? Um, yeah. I read this interview the other day with this artist, um, whom I vaguely know, who is also a mother. And the interviewer, who was a man, asked her if being a mother or how being a mother had imprinted on her, you know, on her work and her art life. And she was like furious, you know, and she and said something to the effect of, mm -hmm. if I was a man, you would never have asked me this question. Um, hmm. And I felt really mixed about that. I felt like on one hand, 
Absolutely. That is totally true, right? Um, and there's so much sexism baked into that question. Um, like we, that we assume that it affects women and women's lives in this way. Like we never, like no one asked, right? Like whatever, I'm trying to think, whatever male artist, right? Like no one asked them that question about fatherhood. Um, but on the other hand, I felt like, well, here I am, this female artist making work about motherhood and birth and, you know, delivery and pregnancy. And like, it's changed everything about my work. I just, I, to me, it felt like the answer, if there was an answer, was not was not to ask no one this question. It's to ask everyone, you know, like it's to ask men and women. And it feels like maybe it has, maybe it hasn't, or maybe it has in invisible ways. Um, but to sort of, to refuse the question altogether to me felt sort of short-sighted. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. to say, yes, um, it feels as though it's always belonged in some way. And when I underwent the experience myself, I felt a, a cosmic shift. I don't quite know how to describe it, um, except to say that it affected sort of not only my art making in like an academic way, you know, um, I felt like it affected my soul and like, and radically shifted my understanding of the capacity of my body. And so Mm -hmm. that is, you know, that's like indelible in ways that are difficult to describe and, and sort of are woven through my art making and through my life. Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, before we hopped on this podcast, I was just looking through your Instagram to kind of like, just get a feel of some more of your work. And I came across this photo of you with your two sons on your laps and the the caption was just, I made these. And I think that (laughs) alongside like you posting all your other work is just like, was like somewhat profound to me in the sense of like, it's not, they, these two things aren't really that disconnected. Like Mm. we're creating and like creating humans and creating work. And I think that was just like, a really cool moment for me to just like stumble upon throughout your work. And it really like helps define like you as an artist and just everything that you've talked about has been very like profound in that way. Mm-hmm. And then, That's and then really to nice. build on that too. Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Build on that too. Yeah, no, it's okay. I think when you're talking about like being a parent as like part of your work and your life and like, this is, you know, just as much important and really is, and they're not separate things from like the art that you make. Um, I'm sure this is something you think about a lot and this is something that we can end on, but do you just, and this is like just all very, you know, just maybe something you think about, maybe you don't, so you don't have to have an answer to this, but do you have like advice for future parents or like the, like how they raise their children to be better community builders, as you've been saying, or leaders for future generations? And do you think, do you like, do you still think the golden rule is to like treat others the way you want to be treated? Or do you think that's changed? <laughs> I, I would never dare um, give advice to other parents. <laughs> That's <laughs> something I've learned as a parent. Um, yeah. I will say that um, I just wrote this piece of writing um, that was just just actually came out a few days ago in this magazine called Ursula, published by this gallery Hauser and Worth. And mm. the um, the essay was specifically about being asked about being a mother of sons. And I feel like that's something that I can speak to maybe a little bit more specifically Mm -hmm. than like some larger parenting advice. Because I have two sons um, who are now, as I've mentioned, two and four, and because I am an artist, a feminist artist who sort of contends with, um, you know, maternal worlds and um, in some cases anti like, you know, exclusionist, anti-male worlds in my work and with like a kind of a radical feminist politic, what does it mean to, you know, what does it mean to have had two sons as if that was right, as if any of us choose this kind of thing. And I'm asked that question with more frequency than you might imagine. And the question really goes something like, you're a feminist, but you have boys, like talk about that. Or um, how do you, what advice do you have for other feminists or for other women who have sons in this, you know, in this like paternalistic, you know, world we, we occupy? And that, mm-hmm. I got that question maybe half a dozen times across different interviews over the years and felt like, well, how the fuck do I begin to answer this question, you know? And so <laughs> I wrote this essay to just contend with that for the first time and, um, it would be difficult to like make that 
uh, argument in a more compact way, I guess, I guess what I sort of arrive mm-hmm. at, and I arrive at this through really, again, like looking at the foremothers, you know, like who also, who, who contended with the same thing, people like Adrian Rich or Audre Lorde, who wrote about being the mothers of sons, you know, um, inside of their feminist striving and sort of what it means to educate our sons to, as Adrian Rich writes, to live for themselves and, mm. you know, and, and not sort of in some ways to resist the patriarchy as, as, you know, as this big seductive force that offers mm. them power, you know, that under, to understand that there are other kinds of channels of power and, mm. um, you know, other methods of feeling. Um, and, that's uh, it's I diff- I'm having a difficult time summarizing it because it's a it's a rather long <laughs> essay with with kind of different points and counterpoints, but and sure. I don't know that I'm like the authority on this either. But mm-hmm. you know, it's something, and it's not your question, but it's something that I have of course wrestled with over the years. And now my older son is four, and um, he knows what a gun is. Like some you know someone right. at school, I'm sure has told him, and so he's like really into shooting things with his gun, you know, like whatever that he doesn't have a gun, but like with his, you know, like with his finger with some imaginary object. And, um, this is in some ways what the essay is about, like this point in which, you know, sons become, become sort of interested in, um, you name it, power, violence, Mm -hmm. um, aggression, you know, and, um, how to, uh, how to contend with that inside Mm -hmm. of, you know, um, well, what, what Adrian Rich would refer to as kind of like the anti-maternal, an anti-maternal world. And yeah. so that is, that's not, that's not a coherent answer, but, um, it is something that I think about a lot. And what can I say, except that like, we all have to raise our children to live for themselves, you know, to feel for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, like that, that is what it is to be a sensitive person and like, you know, and, and a citizen and, People mm-hmm. do that in so many different ways that are all really viable. And, you know, it's like so many parents, it's like you just, you do the best you can and you make it up a little bit as you go and you make mistakes and um, you try to see your children really, like really yeah. see them. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking yeah, time. That last, that last question. I'm sorry. That's like, it's so hard to talk about, you know? Um, no, but it's know. good because yeah. you, you talk about like these <laughs> points of discussion that I don't think people have. I think people are afraid to talk about these things because they don't feel as if there's like a universal answer to them. So they don't talk about it. But it's interesting. Like, I think we're always more fascinated and interested in like these kind of these questions or discussion points where there's not really always an answer. Like it kind of just leaves you with more questions sometimes. Indeed. Yeah. Which, you know, ideally, right. That sort of propels. It's a, that's the life project. Right. Um, Anyways, Carmen, thanks for uh, jumping on with us. Uh, We really enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to the Mouthwash Podcast. For more information, you can follow us on social media or check us out at mouthwash.com.